Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins. And prominent educational thought leader, Adriana Duprada. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education. Those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in a new world environment. These are their stories. Thriving in your world, thriving in our world. How about a whole world of maths? How about Woo's wonderful world of maths? Eddie Wu is a phenomenon in the world of education and the world of broadcasting and the world of youth today. He's a maths teacher at Cherrybrook Tech High School. He's the leader of maths growth from the New South Wales Department of Education. He's got over 1 million subscribers and 60 million views on his WooTube YouTube channel. He is an awesome person and he is an ideal candidate for us to talk to about thriving in the world and what that looks like. I can't wait to talk to him, Adriana. Let's go. Phil, it is so wonderful to be with you again. How is uh, the glorious Sydney treating you today? Oh, look, it's a little bit grey and glum, but that's uh, the the counterpoint to that. That's just its its personality. But how is the rest of the place going? Oh, look, it's just fine. I was about to say the counterpoint to that is the smile on Eddie's face at the moment. So I can't wait for us and for his sunshine to just find its way down to Melbourne to you. Well, we all need a little bit of sunshine in our lives, don't we, Phil? We do indeed, particularly Sunshine West. Correct. Now, I'm really excited about today. This is, this is uh, an individual that we've wanted to be, have a chat with for quite some time. And uh, many Australians are very familiar with this bright uh, star, not just because of his mathematics, but predominantly because of his humanity. Eddie Wu, it is wonderful to have you on our particular show. And I'm going to launch directly into our very first question. This is a question that we actually ask every single guest. And that is, tell us a little bit about your story. How have you gotten to where you are today? Well, thanks, Adriano and Phil. It's great to be here. I'm really glad that um, you're right. It's been it's been a long time coming for us to line up this conversation. I'm delighted to be here with both of you. Uh, you know, you sort of uh, it's a dangerous thing to ask someone who loves stories like me uh, to kind of wind up. I mean, how, how long did you say we had? We got an hour, right? I think you might not have a, a lot enough time. Um, but for me to give you, you know, the Reader's Digest version. I've always loved learning. It's something that comes from my background. My parents were born in Malaysia and they came here to Australia because like many uh, from an immigrant background, they prized education. They knew it was um, the way to to security and prosperity, particularly in in a space, in a culture that was incredibly competitive. And also knowing that a place like Malaysia also, you know, was built on but didn't necessarily, uh, you know, smile upon people of, of migrant background themselves. So um, for anyone who has um, any familiarity with Malaysian culture, it is uh, very much uh, built uh, and designed around indigenous Malay. So if you are of Chinese heritage, which my family was, um, you were always kind of a second class citizen. You couldn't own a business or you couldn't own more than 49% of a business. Um, a lot of educational and employment opportunities were just out of grasp. And so that's part of what brought my family here to Australia as part of our DNA. I always knew it growing up, growing up that the reason why we were here was because of our, the access to schools and universities and so on. And so I think that kind of 
really was internalized to me when I was going through school and then coming to that wonderful spot thinking as many people are right now in fact if they're in year 12 or earlier what will I do with my life what kind of direction can I set myself in and it wasn't uh, particularly normal for you know the peers of mine in a very academically competitive environment to think about education um, but as you can see from the background that I'd always grown up in that was something that was always at the forefront of my mind and it was just cemented by the fact that I love seeing people learn. Uh, even the little opportunities I had as sort of a leader of extracurricular activities at school, um, these are things I, I found deep joy and satisfaction in, which I thought everyone used to, uh, but then I realized, oh no, you know, my friends would tell me, Eddie, it's, it's just you who really enjoys teaching the younger recruits in the cadet unit uh, to how to pitch a tent or how to navigate. Like everyone else hates that experience, but you seem to love it. So for me, that's kind of what brought me into the education space. And it's been a wild ride for the last uh, 13 years in the classroom, but you know, the, this this world of education has certainly taken me some places I didn't expect. There's there's a great energy and vitality to Eddie Wu, one that continues to be so infectious. And uh, the first time I can recall encountering uh, Eddie was when I watched the 2017 Australia story that featured you and your in your family, and you shared the kind of profound story of migration. And for me, the real hero in that particular story was that of your parents in many ways, who, who had the courage to uh, set sail, so to speak, and find new shores for new opportunities for, for them and of course, children uh, mm -hmm. and to prosper. And for me, that's such a courageous undertaking. Uh, and it also is one that is deeply rooted in, in being respectful because they, they honour so much of their heritage, which, you know, you've just touched upon a little bit there. It's also about hope. It's about a heartache. And it's also about optimism. What impact do you feel that your profile in particular now on the Australian landscape means for fellow Asian Australians who are continually trying to find their voice and their space in this place of hope and optimism? Hmm. That's a really deep question. And it sort of gets at something quite visceral for me, to be honest, because um, as, as many people, not just from an Asian Australian background, but from anyone who's had that experience of being a first or, or second generation migrant, um, to, to have that experience of not necessarily fitting anywhere, being very uncertain about your identity in a world where, despite how you know international we are and how much we cross cultural boundaries, um, I think something that the last few years, for example, politically has taught us is that every human being is longing for a, a tribe to belong to, for better or for worse. Uh, and so to, to have that sort of perspective, growing up as an Asian Australian and not really seeing many people around me who, who looked like me or sounded like me, um, that was just intensely confusing. I mean, heading into adolescence is confusing enough when you're trying to work out who am I, who, which, which group of peers do I belong with um, at a personal level. We know that's really challenging. It's one of the things which I think about my own children. They're all in primary school aged. Um, my oldest is just coming to high school next year. So, you know, this, this sort of pre-adolescent stage, I can see it beginning and friends of mine who have children who are a little bit older, um, you know, they, they kind of say to me, yes, you work with teenagers every day, but it's quite a different premise having them in your household. So I know that's coming for me. Um, but for me, you know, coming back to your original question, that idea, and it's, it's, it's quite confronting really to realize that I have I have a responsibility, I think, now as someone who, who works within a public space um, and who 
again, for better or for worse, kind of speaks for and, and represents not just myself, but, but a whole kind of community. Um, that's a big weight on my shoulders. And I'm constantly thinking about the times when um, I often feel like I can no longer speak just as an individual with my own personal point of view. Um, I always am, am there to represent others and, and their view. So there's been a lot of, of thinking that I've done over the last few years to understand that diversity. Even within a single community, we know there is incredible uh, different perspectives and backgrounds within that. So I, it's something which I feel like I'm still a novice at doing, even though I've been doing it for a few years now. So I guess that's on brand with the whole idea of learning that I feel is, is lifelong and it's something we all adopt. It's part of what I guess this podcast is about. Um, Eddie, thanks for that. And it, it's, it's an interesting conversation here, isn't it? It's, it's three first, second generation Australians and we've got, you know, Italy, Austria, Malaysia, uh, Poland and Ireland all represented in this conversation mm. so it's, there's, a, there's a there's a real mix in and around this i want to take you just on a, on a slight tangent for a moment and talk about a couple of pieces of research around leadership because one of the things about you is that you are as much as anybody i've seen in education an exemplar of leadership by exemplar you know you you are a person who leads by example jeff southworth did a study of successful educational leaders in the United Kingdom for the College of Educational Leaders a number of years ago now, 2008, but he took 15 years worth of data. And he identified four things that leaders do and four essential character traits that they have. And the one that rated the most important of all was optimism. And Adriano touched on that in his question. Why is optimism so important when you're a leader in a school? Hmm. That's really interesting. You know, um, when you were talking just now about, you know, how I've found myself in the leadership space and that importance of being exemplary and, you know, leading from the front, um, the thing that I reflect on, you know, talking about before we get to this, this importance of optimism is that uh, it's been sort of equal parts for me. My, my sort of journey into leadership has been equal parts intentional and accidental. Um, the accidental part is that in many regards, you know, I think back to my first few teaching positions and I looked at the leaders uh, who, uh, you know, sort of uh, drove and, and, and uh, provided initiative within the schools that I worked and I kind of I had great admiration and respect for so many of them and realized fairly quickly that I, my personality did not line up with any of the leaders really um, who I worked under and I thought that's fine, that's okay, um, I, have my, I will find my own niche in, in, at the appropriate time. Um, but leadership was not, never something I aspired to. Um, it really happened sort of out of recognizing that with this need, this uh, vacuum in the school leadership space, particularly in my key learning area in mathematics. That's something which is not just you know, a New South Wales or an Australian thing, it's across the Western world. And so there was this sensation of need there that I realized I can do something about. Um, but I sort of fell into that by accident, not because I planned out, here's my five year strategy. Uh, but the intentionality of it has been exactly what you said in terms of I've always recognized that leading from the front, the, the leaders who I um, have the most respect for are those who have a deep sense of the work and are not um, pulled away uh, and, and, and sort of distant from that. And I think about, you know, in, in Japan, they talk about going to, to the Gemba, that the actual place, the, the, the coal front, the crime scene, um, wherever the work is actually taking place. And for that to be uh, something that's not removed from leadership and their decisions is, is vital. And I think that maybe that is the best way to answer your question when you talk about optimism, right? I remember someone um, said to me once, I, I don't know whether the optimists or the pessimists are right, 
but I know the optimists are the ones who are getting things done. Because if we kind of come to this situation within schools, for example, the tremendous challenges that we've faced, uh, not just long term, but especially this year, um, if we do not have that, that streak, that grain, that texture of optimism to our work, then why do we even bother? Um, there, there has to be, I think, a sense of whilst we pair up with um, that realism of the fact that you know things things do not change fast. They do not change easily. Certainly, all the things that I'm um, working toward are the kinds of gnarly problems, those wicked, um, poorly defined problems that do not have their multifactorial. They don't have a silver bullet. All those things are hard, so we don't want to, uh, you know, shy away from that difficulty, that challenge. But if we do not have an underlying conviction that change is possible and that, you know, it's not so much that a small group of people can't change the world, but in fact that a small group of people convinced and dedicated to their task is the only thing that's ever changed the world, I feel like that's what undergirds the optimism that enables us to really work and be effective, especially in a space like education. Yeah, that's very, very interesting, Eddie. It's, it's, I, I, I love hearing you talk about that blend of intentionality versus accidental, and, and that ties in with exactly the sort of um, uh, exactly the sort of uh, approaches for both the design of learning and the and the nature of leadership that we've been able to uncover in our global research over the past decade into how you put together an education for character and competence in wellness that mm. helps people to thrive in their world. I want to pick up on a couple of things that are coming forward too. And again, they're things that might look like binary opposites, um, but, but I don't think they are. Um, Jim Collins in Good to Great talks about the true quality of great leaders. And he talks about the idea of humility and willpower and the capacity to bridge the apparently unreconcilable gap between the two. So I want to talk with you about the notion of bridging that gap because you present so you, you, you present in such a lovely manner and an accessible manner and an easy manner and you know anything that looks that easy is of course there's a lot of work that's gone into it to mm. make it look that easy how do you in your work keep finding bridges between things that look as though they're too difficult to connect to each other hmm in some ways, you know, bridging between uh, these these binaries that you're talking about before, um, in many ways, I feel like that's been a lot of my professional growth as as I've become a teacher, as I've become, I mean, as as you guys mentioned before, um, a, a, a better and more mature human, not just an educator. I feel like the the recognition and the learning of of nuance between you know so many false dichotomies across the world, um, across our culture. Um, that's that's a deep part of of what it means to understand things better and to go from an immature view where, for example, um, I remember thinking to myself, okay, which which one is more important? Uh, is it is it subject expertise um, or is it uh, you know that ability to connect with an individual student or a group of students in your classroom, uh, and that's something which there there are arguments raging all around the world in educational spaces about you know for example in a space like mathematics um, there's like I said this shortage of of teachers in this space because of the vast variety of different opportunities that someone with that uh, you know base level of competence in a mathematical field can go off and do apart from education. And so a lot of people are trying to solve this problem. Um, I know there are so many uh, different initiatives and attempts to try and draw people into this profession. And so a natural question to ask, I suppose, is, well, 
where do we look for these people? What kind of key characteristics are we going to try and find? Um, and some people say, give me, give me the people with the relational skills and I can develop that, that curriculum knowledge after the fact, or someone who will say vice versa. And for me, that's um, like we, we've just sort of been flagging, that's a very false dichotomy to be able to say that you can choose between these two and in fact to, to recognize that there's a coherence between them that can't be completely separated that in fact you know humility maybe is the perfect way to go about it because my uh, conviction that every single student can um, achieve in my mathematics classroom no matter what their background or no matter what kind of support they have or don't have at, at home um, for me, that comes from the humility of recognizing, well, that's, that's where I came from. That's where I, I, I went through school um, not enjoying my subject particularly, but importantly, towards the latter sort of part of my schooling, um, I had to take on a significant role as a carer in my home because my mum was very ill, as you probably um, referenced to Adriana when we were watching the Australian story, and telling that, that to my students and recognizing, well, of course, you know, the humility of coming from that position and knowing that I needed people to support me in that is something which um, I want to carry through in my relationship with every student whom I interact with. Now, when you talk about those two things I was mentioning before, subject knowledge and that ability to connect with the student, both of these things cohere in that, that humble approach to, to teaching and learning in the classroom. I've got to be able to not just say I'm going to interact with a human level, understand why it is, like what's been going on at home, why is it that you've been, yeah, you know, you're between mum and dad's place, or um, there's just, there's this illness or something else going on in your own, um, in your own personal setting. But in addition to that, to actually do something instrumentally to help that, I have to have a really deep knowledge of the curriculum to know at which point you've got those gaps in which I can su provide support that actually will help you, your learning outcomes. So you, you can't unmarry those two. There's no, there's no effective divorce between them. And so I guess I'm always looking for that um, explanatory concept underneath that binds the two together. Um, and that was just one example there, but I, I'm trying to constantly bridge things like, like mathematics and the creative arts. People think of them as two separate things, but I don't think they really are. So um, that's something which I find great joy in and I love helping people see. I think that it's very satisfying to grab a hold of that. So that's for me what motivates that work. I think what's really uh, fascinating sitting here listening to you, Eddie, in response to your question there, Phil, I, I think Eddie is the example of what that bridge looks like. I mean, he's just being really humble in his response there, but the reality is that he, he is the example of the interdependence of the strength and the currency of teacher efficacy around knowledge and skill. But he's also an exemplar in this notion of character apprenticeship with the students, the social exchange that goes on between the students and genuinely, genuinely caring about them. Uh, I can't help but think, Eddie, that your lived experience of being a significant carer for your mother is a key factor in all of this because one thing that strikes me about you and just sitting here listening to you today is that not only do you have a deep capacity to listen, which I think is the first step to empathy, is that you have a deep empathy for those around you. And anyone that has the privilege of watching one of your WooChu videos, for me, the revelation in them is not that I'm learning mathematics, by the way, I am, <laughs> um, but it's more around what I'm learning is the strength of connectedness. Mm. And that leads me to my next kind of question or line of thinking. You know, this year, schools and teachers found themselves pivoting to a kind of continuous learning context where the use of technology to reach students located on what we call the home campus kind of was deployed. 
interestingly, this type of delivery model is something that, of course, you've been utilizing now for many, many years. And us here in Victoria, it hasn't stopped. You see, there's many, many educators across Australia that, that probably haven't even fully had an appreciation for the strength and the challenge of remote learning uh, or continuous learning, as Phil and I like to call it, because some of them only had it for two weeks where of course in Victoria, this is now, we're now going into our 13th, 14th week of, of this kind of paradigm. Mm. Phil mentioned at the top of the show that you've hit 1 million subscribers. I mean, that is just remarkable, you know, remarkable for, for anyone to, to get that. But that's again, because I believe that's the strength of your person and your humanity, uh, not just about the fact that you have an expertise because see, there are a lot of people who have expertise, but if they can't cut through, they can't cut through. And that's, that's I feel your special source. My question to you is this, what role do you feel continuous learning or remote learning is going to now play in the future of schooling? Hmm. I get equal parts excited and terrified when I think about uh, the roadmap we're going to have to take to whatever the new normal is going to be. I think, you know, in some ways your question is very easy to answer in that, well, it's going to have a central role in what education looks like in the future. Done. Are we, can, we, can we agree on that? Um, but then, then of course, um, the challenge comes in answering, you know, the devil's in the details, isn't it? And when you're talking about that 13th, 14th week, you know, um, like yourself, I've got a number of um, friends in, in Melbourne, actually, who as educators have realized and have, have sort of relayed to me that, you know, playing the long game on this is a really different premise. Um, you know, to take a bit of a tangent, um, the, the kids TV show that I host, um, Teenage Boss on the ABC, um, we give teenagers control of their family's budget um, to make financial decisions, to, to learn responsibility and the value of money. But a critical part of that is not just giving it to them for a day or two, but to give it to them for a month. Because um, as they like to say in the business, that's enough rope to hang yourself with, right? To, you've got to set up... Um, patterns and structures and relationships that work over the long term, not just a flash in the pan. And I certainly think that's been true of us um, thinking about how this continuous learning has affected the way that we do things. E even here in New South Wales, where like you've pointed out, we haven't had anything like um, the duration and length of what you're coping with here. You know, my, my school, we kind of went on high alert quite recently because a school a couple of kilometers down the road became a COVID-19 hotspot. So we were all kind of, um, you know, watching nervously, especially as a school of 2000 in a fairly, fairly densely, you know, populated area of Sydney. Um, we were, you know, we weren't up at DEFCON 1 yet, but we were still we were ready to push the red button. And so to know that at any moment, this could happen. Vaccine, who knows when that's actually, you know, there's been a lot of talk about Russia and the US and what they're racing to do. But of course, I think we all have to settle in and say, actually, one of the best things that we have learned in this season is how much accessibility we do have to our learning, to our students. And I know that here at our school, several of our students actually reported that while they were very grateful to be back in the classroom with their peers and with their teachers, there were certain aspects of that remote setup that they were going to miss and that were very keen to actually say, hey, please make this part of the new normal because it was a really effective way to help us and, and um, enable us to always be, like you said, connected to that process of learning wherever we were. So Eddie, I'm thinking about what you're talking about right now and I'm thinking about the way in which you can connect so well to people. And you know, that just like, 
Adriana and I, if we've been in enough classrooms, you know, you walk around a school, you walk around a space, you know which teachers are connecting with the students and which aren't. We also know from PISA, and much as it pains me to say, that neither history nor visual arts are the most important subjects in the curriculum. Maths is the most important subject in the curriculum. And it's the most important subject because it has the most profound effect on kids' learning. We know from PISA that maths teachers have the greatest effect, positive or negative, on the success of kids, not only in maths in school, but in all their other subjects as well too. So if a kid's had a good math teacher, you will see it come out in all their other subjects around that. So again, a little piece of our research around the character competency wellness piece starts with this. If you feel as though you belong, you are more likely to achieve your potential. If you feel as though you belong and achieve your potential, you're more likely to do good and right in the world. You have to promote belonging. How do you help kids feel as though they belong in a space that's learning about maths? Hmm. You know, that's, um, you've reminded me of just that immense, uh, you know, responsibility that is, is born, uh, sometimes, you know, not even recognized, but it is by every mathematics teacher out there because, um, you know, I've, I'm familiar with that research too. And it's been, you know, thinking about, oh, let's, let's understand how Australia performs across the OECD. You know, where, where are we positioned? And those are, you know, superficially interesting questions, I think, to ask. Um, but, but when you get to things like, where, where, what's the real cause and effect underneath here? That's, that's deep and profound and weighty what it reveals about the implications for what's happening within a mathematics classroom and how decisive that can be in a student's self-concept as they, as they leave that classroom. And I think there's something about that. You know, it's a bit of a truism. If you, if you go and watch any, any Hollywood film, um, obviously not in the cinema at the moment, but uh, any, any big movie that features, you know, high schoolers, adolescents, and if you want someone to be pictured as having a bad time at school, what does the director do? They put them in their maths classroom and they show that look of frustration and lack of comprehension. And it's just such a, such a classic trope because I think it's something we all have an immediate identification with. Oh yeah, yeah, I absolutely know what that feeling is like sitting there in the classroom, you know, looking up at the, at the whiteboard and just seeing this maze of symbols up there and thinking, this is all Greek to me. I mean, maybe it's literally Greek to you to know that that's a place where students are, are deeply perplexed and where there's that um, inequity actually um, across the classroom of the kids who get it and the kids who don't. Um, it is strongly decisive. So when we come back to this idea of like, how do we, how do we give students that feeling of belonging? I mean, it goes, it goes to me for like the first lesson every time I meet students always has to be about the students and about me knowing who they are and not just knowing who they are, but for them to know that that is primary in importance to me. Just the simplest things, right? Like when you're having a conversation with a student, um, you know, obviously you, you convey to them, hey, you're important to me, not just as a learner in my classroom, but as a human being. That's something I learned from my, my best teachers who made very deep impressions on me when I was at school. Uh, the ones who made positive impressions, I should say. Um, and think, you know, for me, when I then say to them, okay, this is not just me having one interaction with you. I actually want to do something with that. I want to go somewhere with that. So, you know, when I, when I survey my students at the very start of the year, and there's a bunch of different questions here that I want to ask them, um, many of them will respond to me, no teacher. And I should say, like, this, this is equal parts 
heartbreaking and, and delightful for me. I'm like, well, I'm glad someone's finally asking you this, but I'm heartbroken that your response to me is no teacher in 13 or 14 years has asked me this in before I start learning in, in their classroom to, to want to know me, what's going on in my life, what I'm interested in, um, what, what drives me and what motivates me. As a teacher, that's the thing that is most important to me because I know most people learn mathematics as a very abstract subject. The X's and the Y's, the power of them is they can stand for anything, but the great mistake that we often make is that we don't let them stand for, for actual concrete things, which is, which is their, where they have value. So, uh, pardon the pun. I think that for me then, that belonging comes from saying to you guys, hey, what is it that drives you? What is it that you're passionate about? I can find a way, a road from mathematics to that and to show you have a place, a really unique and important one in our classroom to help us see that part of mathematics and to learn it together. So that's how I model it in my lessons. I want to continue this kind of conversation around uh, mathematics. You know, when, when people think of you, Eddie, they, they think of this passionate educator that cares very deeply for all their students. And I think you've just illustrated that because what, you're, what I'm hearing you say is that it goes beyond the realm of just getting to know them and genuinely wanting to know them. But what I'm hearing you say is that to create this sense of belonging, you're drawing explicit connections from the learning to the real reality of their lives and, 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 and kind of crystallizing it for them in a way that it moves from the abstract to the real um, so that they can connect those dots. So you're, you're, you're allowing it to become accessible to them in ways that then not, not only do they feel that they belong as a person, but they, they belong academically. And that's where their aha moments, you know, really, really come into play. So let's talk about maths. And you're an author of a number of books. You're launching a brand new book now, Eddie Wu's Magical Maths 2, uh, released <laughs> this month. Tell us a little bit about this book and, and what is your hope that young people are going to encounter, particularly kids, because that's who the market is. What are they going to encounter in these pages? Because I know I've got a copy of your wonderful uh, world of maths here, and I'm very pleased that you added some pictures to it being a visual <laughs> arts teacher because it was the only way I was going to actually turn the pages, my friend. Um, uh, although I love numbers from a graphic design point of view, I'm hopeless at putting them together and making any kind of sense from them. So um, let's talk about what do, you, what do you hope for these kids and what are they going to encounter in this great book? I've got to say, I think you're probably underselling yourself uh, to begin with, because I know a lot of, I mean, maybe Phil disagrees, but I know a lot of what is mathematical is implicit. And the, um, you know, the visual arts teachers who I work with, um, their, their manipulation of, of pattern and colour um, is phenomenal to me. And the, the patterns that they often show me, um, the, the mathematics underneath it is often far more profound than they realise. And that's kind of one of the things which I think fits into the question you just asked me. What, what do I hope kids experience? Um, a few things. Number one, I want them to have fun. I want their experience of mathematics to be one of joy. Um, but I also want them to gain a sensation for the fact that mathematics is all around them and it's often experienced in ways and places that we wouldn't expect. So one of the, one of my key driving messages that I've, I've tried to um, embody um, through my years of teaching is that mathematics is found everywhere there isn't a place in the world that you can look and that I can't dig in there and find some mathematics connected to it or within it. Mathematics is found everywhere and it's, it's for everyone. A lot of people, it's a major misconception, will say, oh, I'm just not a maths person or I am a maths person. They're both sadly mistaken. There is no such thing as a maths 
person. If there is, we all are, because we're all born with a sense of counting, of quantity. We are so good as human beings. Uh, you might have read this in the intro to the book, Adriano. We're so good as human beings at finding patterns. We even find patterns that aren't there. And that's why we all look up at the sky and we see constellations where it's just literally a random arrangement of stars. Um, it's why there are things like the gambler's fallacy where we think, okay, um, if, if I have uh, not won this many times in a row, surely I will win the next time. There's a pattern there. It's not a real pattern, but this just goes to how, how wired we human beings are to think mathematically. And I think that probably why people don't is because of um, an experience more often than not from within school, but it also happens within the home because I think parents are hugely important in shaping their, their children's uh, concept around mathematics, um, willfully and you know, unwillingly as well. And so I guess uh, I, want, I want children to experience mathematics in a, in a playful and a joyful way. Um, that's actually one of the most cruel tricks that we play on students, which is that mathematics is at its heart creative and, and, and joyful and imaginative, but most people don't ever get to experience that until they sort of get to university and then they realize mathematics can be learned in a very different way and conducted in a very different way. So, yeah. I'm sorry, Eddie, but in my experience is that some maths teachers don't understand that. Mm. No, 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 you're absolutely right. I mean, and it's, it's, it's really awful to sort of reckon with the reality, the fact that we, we primarily, as we know, we will default to the way that we were taught um, if we are not um, you know, self-reflective uh, and, and critical of our practice. And frankly, in mathematics, uh, and there's, there's sort of valid reasons to this. They're not good, but they're valid reasons. Um, I think that pull and that bias is the strongest. I mean, for me, I think you know, mathematics is a timeless subject. Pythagoras and Euclid, these are some of the most ancient names that anyone will learn in school, even outside the ancient history classroom. But because of that timelessness, um, there are few other teachers who are more um, liable to, to cling to the old and traditional ways of teaching. And I, I feel that even within my own bones, so I know it's part of what is the warp and woof of mathematics education. It's something that we need to shift. Look, I, I love hearing you talk about the notion of maths being in everything. I think one of the turning points in my life was when I read Mark Buchanan's book on ubiquity theory and started thinking about the way in which complexity theory and chaos theory could start to influence the way in which we look at history. So, for example, we have this, what Danny Kahneman would call, you know, a cinema anachronism where we read back into <laughs> asked a narrative which is in our heads, which probably wasn't there to start with. Mm. And... You know, for example, we look at the origins of the First World War and we say there's this thing that clearly must have been it. And right now, across the world, we'd be more likely to talk about colonialism and imperialism than anything else because we're talking about colonialism and imperialism. But, you know, 30 years ago, we were talking about great power intrigue. So we, we, we read our present back into the past, I guess. Mm, mm. The ubiquity theory stuff says stop doing that and instead think about history differently. Start thinking about the rate and frequency rather than the scope and sequence with which things occur. So we know that a, a certain amount of bushfires will be started in a period of time by a certain grade of lightning strike. We don't know which lightning strike will start the bushfire, but we do know in a period of time that it will happen. So if you're looking at causation in history, start thinking less about which event and start thinking about what types of events are occurring and be prepared to accept that actually some things happen because of random tipping points rather mm -hmm. than because of a scope and set. That just blew my mind. So sitting there <laughs> and reading that sort of stuff 20 years ago, the, the thought of using 
hard science to think about social science and the way we put it together, shifted my thinking altogether. We talked with Conrad Wolfram, another one of our mm -hmm. game changers. And when you talk with Conrad, it's a little bit like that. It's a, it's a whole paradigm shift where he starts saying things like, let's get kids doing real big gnarly computation much earlier rather than following a traditional math syllabus because mm -hmm. why do we need to do a math syllabus when we could be doing this kind of... I'm really interested in, in your perspective on do we need a paradigm shift? Mm -hmm. We need to be thinking about the way in which... Because I don't, I don't know, man, I'm, I'm looking at your books here and I, I can say this book's been sitting on the corner of the, the desk and all of the all of the uh, orbital productions team have been wandering past. Everyone picks it up and they go. First of all, they go, "Oh, Eddie Wu, like you're a rock star." Um, and secondly, they then start reading it, and because they're all quite creative, they go, "Oh, that doesn't look like a math book." And then hmm. they start saying, "These are wicked ideas." Hmm. Yeah. I mean, the most direct way I can answer your question is: Do we need a paradigm shift? Absolutely. We do. I mean, we're, we're here, we're talking about being game changers, right? I think one of the important things that I know characterizes my work is I do my best to work within the system and its constraints um, where, where I can. Um, you know, I, I think that it is um, a mistake to say that the only way that you can um, bring about deep substantial change is by blowing up the system. Um, you know, I, I, I would like to say that it's important that we think about really radical changes, um, but I think that if we don't say, you know, there's this 800,000 students across the 2,207 uh, 2, schools in the Department of Education in New South Wales, and that's a big system, you're not going to shift it at all if you can't interact within the system. But then at the same time, if we are just going to poke around at the edges, then for something as, as massive as uh, mathematics education, just to pick one example, um, you're absolutely right, and it's, it's kind of terrible that people maybe look at my book for the first time and realize, oh, this, this doesn't look like mathematics. Um, to me, that's really telling because what it says is, um, you've not ever really met mathematics then if this is not what you think that it is like in some ways the ideas that i i included in in my books they're, they're not groundbreaking but they're not well known either and so i feel like there's this enormous space there it's why i feel so passionately about staying in the classroom but also interacting with our culture's view of education and of mathematics because um i mean to give you a metaphor right when when an army is going to invade um, a country. You've got to, you can't just win the ground war. You, you can't go in on foot with your infantry without air support, but you can't just fly jets over something and bomb from a distance. You've got to win the air war at the same time as the ground war. So the paradigm shift has to happen in parallel to that really deep grassroots work. They, they have to happen simultaneously. To mix metaphors, we've all got to put our oars in the water at the same time, as policymakers, as decision makers, as, as, as leaders and uh, teachers at the coalface, otherwise we just end up going in circles. So, um, and I, I, love, I love hearing maths teacher using metaphors and, and also mixing metaphors as well too, because that means that you're both <laughs> elegant and human at the same time. Um, all of our research in education suggests that to make big steps forward, you need incremental reform over a period of time. So you need that intent mm. that you were talking about earlier. You need an agile approach. But if you take people too fast, too quickly, and I guess some of what we're seeing around the world at the moment where people are wanting to smash things around all over the place and, 
And of course, the second they get the capacity to do that, what they create is chaos rather than mm. improvement along the mm. way. One of the things that you are able to do is to take a step forward yourself. And we've asked quite a few of the game changers about this. How does that feel when you're stepping out into the unknown? Tell us about mm. that moment where you turn around and go, do you know what? This is different and I'm going to do this. Mm. There's been a number of times that that's happened to me. And in some ways, it's been interesting. You know, you talked before about Danny Kahneman and, you know, um, writing a, a narrative for ourselves retrospectively. And I often think back, I mean, uh, just to pick out, you know, doing things on YouTube, for an example, we're coming up to um, eight years. And when I say we, I mean myself and my students, because my students are a really important part of the cast of what makes um, those videos on YouTube so engaging, I think, to people that I'm having a dialogue with actual human beings. I feel like that's a, a crucial aspect of why people watch, because they sense the humanity and the, the reality to it. Um, but, but that moment in particular, I, I didn't think anything of it. You know, it, it wasn't scary, I guess, because I didn't think that it was going to go anywhere. And you can, you can know that for a fact, you can verify that, by the way, if you go to my channel and look at the four and a half something um, thousand videos that are on there and just order them in reverse chronological order and you will see how terrible the first few videos are and you'll think, yeah, this guy clearly did not think he had an actual audience who was going to be watching. So that's, that's for clear, that's just historically demonstrable. Um, but there uh, have look been... at it, look, Eddie, 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 at least you've improved along the way. We're still pretty much doing the same thing we did right the beginning of the podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, for sure. Gro growth mindset all the way, my friends. Um, but, you know, there, there certainly have been moments where I've known that I've, I've been stepping out into, the, into a, a space where I kind of thought, am I, am I going off a cliff at this point? Um, you know, when, when I went, uh, you know, the first time I went on the set of, um, when I say the set, it was just a family's home of that ABC show I was telling you before, I thought to myself, what am I doing here? I'm not a TV host. They're going to work out that I'm a fraud. And they're like, hi, what do you do? It's like, I'm a, I'm a maths teacher in a high school. You know, when are they going to work that out that I, I don't belong here clearly? Um, but for me, it was always driven by, why am I doing this? What's my hope? Uh, you're going back to that, you know, optimism idea. What is my hope in trying to do this? Um, even though it is absolutely true that I think, you know, we do introduce, we seed chaos if we just want to say, let's just upend the system and replace it with something crazy. Um, I think that there is a right space to take those risks, to be able to show to others, hey, this is possible. This can be done. You won't know. Of course, that's the whole point of calling it a risk, whether it's going to succeed or not. I've been enormously fortunate that I've been, I've been working with so many amazing people around me that a lot of the crazy harebrained schemes that I have tried have been met with joy and delight and uh, I'm grateful for that and thankful for that team of people I've assembled around me. Um, like, like they say, you know, if you want to succeed in your life, then surround yourself with people smarter than you. And I have definitely taken that advice to heart. Eddie, I think um, you sell yourself well too short. I'm sorry. <laughs> I've just got to jump in here because you, you mentioned before about the system and the notion of blowing it up and whether it's broken and all those type of things. But the truth of the matter is, for many, many years now, you've been an agitator, whether you, whether, whether you want to describe it in that way or not, because you have been a person that has presented an alternative way of doing things. And for me, in many ways, that is a definition of a disruptor. And the notion of disruption is something that seems to be immune to education. Every other industry in the 20, 21st century has been impacted upon by disruption, including the church. 
Mm. You know, um, and I want to move into that space for now because I have enormous faith that you are someone who continues to keep, for me anyway, being a man of faith, the dangerous memory of Jesus alive. And it's a phrase that I use with my, when I've used with my students in the past, because I often say to them, what burns inside of you? What, what, is, that, what is that flame inside of you that, that you need to unlock and find? What is that passion that burns inside of you? Because we know that he was one of the greatest agitators of his time. And, and we know what the ultimate thing that happened to him as a result of that. But we're here today uh, in many ways because of an example he gave us about being true to a mission and being true to something that is our true north. Mm. So I'm interested actually, because you're talking to two people of, of deep faith here. Um, mm. I'm actually interested in shifting this a little bit. And, and my understanding is you are a person of Christian faith and that's important to you. I'm not interested in exploring that component. What I'm interested in exploring is what do you believe is the place of faith and spirituality in increasingly secular society today? That's a really profound question, and you know, as as you were speaking just now, Adriano, you know, a lot of a lot of things sprang into my mind. Uh, you know, like the German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when when Christ bids a man come, he bids a man come and die. And so, you know, to say that that's a dangerous idea um, <laughs> is, in fact, you know, much perhaps to our sin and surprise, is an absolute understatement. Like, danger is like one of the mildest words we could use to describe what's actually being contended there. In terms of the, the, the position and the role and the importance of faith in a very secular world, I mean, I work in a public high school and, um, you know, I've always attended public high schools myself. And to know that uh, that's part of the DNA of the organization is to make space for all faiths and beliefs and convictions, I think is one of the things to be prized about that system. But it's pretty clear as well, you know, when you come to this question of, well, what, what then is the role of religion? A lot of people have said, oh, you know, it, in, a, in a world of, of, of science where, you know, where, where post, you know, enlightenment, we have this understanding, this framing of the world that, that doesn't require all of this, you know, mythology and, and accepting things by faith. Um, I think that, for example, just to pick out one simple instance, COVID has taught all of us that the search for meaning cannot be answered by science, nor has science ever you know, said that it was going to provide those answers. But I think we have all sort of over the, you know, the 20th century forgotten, you know, because we've been so excited by the progress that science has given our, our societies and cultures that we have not remembered, that it, it does, it fails to answer some of the most fundamental questions that we as human beings will have. And so for me, I think about uh, many of the things we've talked about today, you know, wh where does hope and optimism come from? What reason should we as educators be humble in our classrooms with our students, with our colleagues? For me, all of those come from faith. And I know there are, there are also going to be secular um, justifications for those as well. Um, but at, at least from my point of view, when someone asks the question, what does it all mean? When we think about the, the change of this pandemic, the, the lives that have been lost and how to try and make sense of all of that, we all have to look to our convictions and our faiths to be able to answer those questions. So for me, uh, if anything, as we proceed into this more increasingly secular world, the importance of having a place where those questions are answered um, becomes more and more apparent, I think. Uh, Eddie, as I'm sitting here and listening to you, and, you know, we said at the outset that this is, uh, this is the theme of our 
series here is thriving in our world. And, and again, from our research, when we talk to families and we talk to students and we talk to teachers and leaders in schools all around the world, they keep coming back to six things that they want their students to become. And we call these graduate outcomes. They want them to be good people. They want them to be future builders, to be continuous learners and unlearners, to be solution architects, responsible citizens and team creators. I just can't help but think as I'm listening to you today that with your incredible capacity to go from the complex to the simple and to communicate meaning in a world that struggles to find answers to difficult questions, particularly given the volume paced intensity of our times, that this job of preparing students to thrive is even harder than it probably ever has been before. Why is this work so important to you? Why do you mm. want to help students to thrive in their world? You were talking before about you know, bridging the simple and the complex. And for me, I, there are lots of reasons. There are lots of really compelling reasons why this work, in the midst of all of its challenges and its difficulties, and the fact that I think, as pretty much every educator knows, we, we kind of, you know, like candles, consume ourselves to give light to the world in which we live and the community that we serve. We could have some really big ticket, big bird's eye view ways of answering that question. But for me, I, I suppose what's at the front of my mind at the moment is just that individual student, you know, um, coming back to, you know, this idea of faith that you were mentioning before, Adriano, one of my core convictions uh, is that every, every individual, every human being I interact with is of infinite value. That's not an overstatement that's actually the most accurate way that I can say, you know, of this, this human being in front of me who I have the opportunity and the privilege of helping to support in their learning uh, is, is worthy of all the time and attention and energy and devotion that I can give to them. And for me to know that I have not just an individual, but, but to have 30 in front of me in the room or 150 across all the t classes that I teach, or the, the tens of thousands of people I've had the privilege of speaking you know, face to face with over the last few years, or even then you know, sort of broadening out to all these people who amazingly through these um, you know, incredible technologies, we have access to and I have the opportunity to provide a positive influence on. And to know that all of those come down just to sometimes one person and the value that I can have to them can there be any more compelling reasons than to, to look someone in the eye and to say, I can actually, you know, you, you both, like me, have been teaching, in, have been working in this education space long enough to have had students come to us after the fact, sometimes days or weeks or months or even years, and say, you know, sir, um, you're the reason why I could have survived that year, why I could be where I am today. And do you know how how what what a, what a feeling it is in your heart to, to recognize the impact that you have on another human being that alone would be worth all of it and to know that that then gets multiplied to every single person that as of course teachers never know where their impact ends i mean what else will make you roll out of bed at 4 a.m to say this is work that is worthwhile and 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 gives great satisfaction for me that's probably the, the simplest and most compelling way to say why I'm motivated to do this. In 2018, Eddie, I had a number of young men at a school that I taught at when I was giving a, a bit of a speech about the construct of love. And uh, I was talking to them very deeply about my own experiences with uh, a number of religious sisters in Guatemala when I did some volunteer work and also experiences in um, South Africa on a, on a refugee program. 
And we came to the conclusion, of course, that love is a verb. Today, we've extended this conversation. We've gone beyond our 35, 40 minute normal chat with individuals because Phil, I don't know about you, but for me, I'm just going to read a small passage from a, from a blog I wrote about that presentation that I made to the kids because I think it relates to the profoundness of our guests that we've just encountered. So awaken the light within. Become the bearer of great possibility and unconditional love. Become the face of hope and never forget that love is a verb. Eddie, for me, your gift is more than a skill to cut through and allow people to connect to mathematics in ways that brings them joy both from a cognitive point of view and a self-efficacy point of view, but more importantly about joy about their own humanity and coming to a conclusion that they are worthy, that they are known. And I can't find a better example than love is a verb than Eddie Wu. Eddie Wu, this has been amazing and so life-giving. I just want to say thank you very much for continually sharing and becoming the great bearer of possibility for continually sharing unconditional love for the young people in your care. But can I also say for the teachers, you are an inspiration to so many teachers. And I know you've heard this before, but you are an inspiration to so many teachers because you are changing the game, mate. Whether it's a conscious decision or not, you are changing the game. But you do it with humility. You do it with grace. And most importantly, you do it with what burns deeply inside of you. Continue to show your light to the world, mate. And uh, we are so much better for having Eddie Wu in this world. And um, I'm really confident that wherever mum is today, she's looking down at you and she's absolutely delighted about the, the human that has, that has can, and continues to give so much of themselves. So, Eddie, thank you very much. Adriano, Phil, uh, it's been an immense privilege to speak with both of you. And I think... As just one small part of uh, the growing testimony to you know the the impact that you are both having, um, your growing number of listeners, I, I think would absolutely agree with me um, that it's been it's been great seeing the way that you've been shining a light on the incredible diversity of educators we have across our system, who are to be celebrated and, and understood and and to be inspired by. So it's been a great joy change to both of you. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thanks, Eddie. God bless you. And um, if there's anything we can do to support you on your own little pathway to excellence, just let us know. Thanks. <laughs> you might regret offering me that. <laughs> the Game Changers podcast is produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions. It's powered by a schoolfortomorrow.com and circle.education. It's available on Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, on Spotify, and on Google. If you like what you hear, Tell your friends, subscribe, like, you know what to do. Let's go.